This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for March 24th, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Ariana Orville joins us to talk about a psychological and linguistic investigation of how we use the word you. It doesn't always mean someone else. Sometimes we use it to talk about ourselves. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Just a heads up that starting last week, the transcription service Scribby.com, that's S-C-R-I-B-I-E.com, began providing free transcripts for our podcast. Check out the last two weeks' episodes on the science site if you want to read along. We're going to do this for a few more episodes, so please do let us know what you think. Download and listen, write in and let us know this is working for me, this is something that I find useful, and maybe we'll find a way to keep it going. So a special thanks to Scribby.com, audio transcription perfected, 75 cents a minute at 99% accuracy, the best deal on the internet for audio transcription. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on estimating the depth of the world's lakes. From satellite imaging, we have pretty good estimates of the number of lakes on Earth, about 100 million. And from the same images, we get estimates of surface area. There's about 30 billion hectares of lake or 2% of the planet's surface. What we can't get is depth, the volume of water contained in lakes. Instead, we have something more like a range. Where do these depth numbers come from, Dave, if we're not just measuring them from outer space? Well, scientists look at the local topography. So they're looking at the slopes of the surrounding land, and they feel like they can use, sort of use that to estimate, well, how far do those slopes go underwater and therefore how deep the lake is. But as you can imagine, that's pretty inaccurate. Um, they've got this range of Earth's lakes having a volume of somewhere between 160,000 to 280,000 cubic kilometers. So that's a pretty big range. So now, without gathering new data, a group of researchers thought they could do better than this using math and modeling. And they tried to figure out, you know, the distribution of lakes and how deep they were. So what approach do they use to calculate lake depths now? 
Well, sir, they developed a mathematical model of Earth's topography, and they assumed Earth's surface has this fractal-like symmetry that makes it approximately what researchers call self-athene. And what really what that means is no matter how much you zoom in or out, the distribution of mountains and valleys will be statistically identical if all the heights are stretched by a particular factor. Now, what all this translates to, at least according to the model, is that the total volume of Earth's lakes is about 199,000 cubic kilometers, which is kind of on the low end of estimates and indicates that Earth's lakes may only be about two-thirds as deep on average as what we thought. What can these refined numbers tell us? There's less water in lakes. So does that mean we need to change some calculations um, you know, regarding global cycles or, or where water hangs out most of the time? Well, one of the interesting implications is actually for climate change because microbes that don't require oxygen live at the bottom of lakes and produce methane, which is a pretty potent greenhouse gas. And if lakes are shallower, as this study indicates that they are shallower than we thought, more of that gas can bubble up to the surface and into the atmosphere which means that we may have a bigger problem on our hands with climate change than we thought. Now we have a story on what video games can teach us about riding a bike. Unless you've recently had kids, you might not know that there have been some innovations in learning how to ride a bike. Um, These days, bikes for little, little kids don't even have pedals. They're just balance bikes. And then pedals and pushing for power come later. At that point, when kids start biking on their own, The danger isn't from falling over, but from getting in a traffic accident. Right, Dave? Yeah. In fact, bike accidents are actually one of the most common forms of non-fatal injuries in traffic among children. So this is actually kind of a big problem. And so why are kids bad at riding bikes? That was the question from this Q&A that I really liked. Yeah, well, it has to do with situational awareness. You know, it's sort of their brains aren't ready yet to sort of process all of the different obstacles, and even blind spots, things that are not actually obstacles, but things where there could be danger as well as an adult can. So they're really not just sort of making as much sense of their surroundings. Yeah, I could see how being a driver would make you better at biking because you kind of know how cars behave. Exactly. So let's talk about the video game aspect of this. What could a video game do to help kids with this kind of this kind of problem? Well, you know, the game that these researchers developed isn't a very complicated game. It's basically a, sort of a video that gives you a biker's eye view of riding down the street. And sometimes there's cars coming and sometimes there's pedestrians. And sometimes there's a blind spot where a truck could come out of. And what the game really tests is, you know, what basically what happens is you're, you sort of feel like you're driving down the street. All of a sudden the screen goes gray You have to try to remember where the obstacles were in that view. The idea here is that they're being trained to pay attention to very different parts of the screen and kind of just improving their situational awareness. Right, just sort of being more aware of the surroundings. Is there evidence that this works to make kids safer? So, well, adults perform better than children at the game, which you wouldn't be surprised. And the kids that played were about 9 to 10 years old. The researchers think this could be a good tool for teaching children how to ride their bikes by making them more aware, although they actually haven't tested whether the game will be effective for that. And the study actually had a fairly small sample, so they will need to do more research. Last up, we have a story on teaching cars to see better at night. Autonomous cars have their pluses. Imagine sitting in the backseat reading a magazine as the AI in charge deals with traffic and annoying drivers, human or otherwise. 
While we're not quite there yet, one holdup has been the performance of autonomous cars in less than perfect conditions, like rain or darkness. What's the problem, Dave? It's, it's really sort of surprising. You know, these, these autonomous cars can drive from New York to Los Angeles without any human help, but actually turns out when it's nighttime, when there is obstructions, uh, even small obstructions, these cars actually have a really hard time reading road signs, whether that's stop signs or even speed limit signs. They're not very good at it, especially in less than ideal conditions. So is this something that a computer can solve? Well, that's what these researchers are hoping. And that's sort of what they show. They, they use this, what's called a machine learning algorithm. And this is a computer program that can quickly look through an image and decide whether it matches a known pattern. And in this case, the pattern that the machine is looking for is any pattern that is likely to contain a sign. So it's looking for things like size and reflectivity, maybe even the presence of numbers or letters. And then it has to decide, okay, is this a sign? Is this a sign I need to pay? attention to and what do I actually need to do in response to this sign? How would it know what signs to pay attention to and which ones to ignore? Well, for example, you know, if it's looking for specific shapes, so for example, in the U.S., it's looking for an octagon for a stop sign, uh, or if it's looking for more of a rectangle for a speed limit sign, it's going to know that maybe those are signs it needs to pay attention to, maybe more than, rather than something like a billboard. It seems like timing would be really important here. I mean, they have to see and react. Is that something that's coming through in the training that they're doing with this AI? Well, right now, they're just trying to be able to train the computers to actually recognize these signs. That's really the big step. And then going from there, it's a bit more straightforward about how the car responds to those. So one thing I thought of when you said, you know, they're training them on signs specific to the region, does that mean that different cars wouldn't be able to go from country to country or they would have to, you know, check in and change out what they're yeah, doing? Yeah, that's a great question because you can imagine the stop signs probably don't look the same in every country. And obviously speed limit signs are going to be in, you know, kilometers an hour or miles an hour, depending on where you are. So I'm sure that's all stuff that needs to be worked out. One thing that's kind of cool here is even if we're not, even if we're not talking about fully autonomous cars, you know, cars that, uh, that maybe just are sort of semi-autonomous. So we're still driving, but, you know, we have cars today that might tell us if there's a, you know, if there's an obstruction coming up or, you know, if we shouldn't change lanes right now, this could be an added benefit because, you know, maybe it will spot a sign, a speed limit sign or a stop sign that we might not spot and it could help us become better drivers. Okay. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about looking at Martian clouds and especially some clouds that may be shaped by gravity waves. I just see this as curiosity looking thoughtfully up at the atmosphere. At the Martian atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, shaking up the dinosaur family tree, which may have, which may cause a rewrite of some science textbooks and a reshuffling of some museum exhibits. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got our continuing coverage on U.S. President Donald Trump's budget, proposed budget, and how it's impacting science and the response from scientists and science agencies to the budget. Also, why the United Kingdom is moving forward on a controversial assisted reproductive technique. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Graham is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. This episode is brought to you by Blue Apron. Incredible home cooking has never been more attainable, thanks to Blue Apron. Because for less than $10 a meal, 
Blue Apron delivers easy-to-follow seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients right to your door. No more overspending at restaurants or high-end grocery stores. With Blue Apron, you can prepare delicious, memorable meals yourself in under 40 minutes. Not to mention, Blue Apron has partnered with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the United States to ensure that all their ingredients are of the highest quality. And because Blue Apron ships the exact amount of ingredients required, they're reducing food waste. It's delicious, quality food that you can feel good about. Some of the meals available in March include salmon piccata with orzo and broccoli, pork chops and miso butter with bok choy and marinated apple, vegetable chili and baked sweet potatoes with crispy tortilla strips, and spicy shrimp coconut curry with cabbage and rice. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash science mag. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash science mag. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. This episode is brought to you by Stamps.com. These days, you can get pretty much anything you want on demand online. Go on a website, order a toboggan, get it tomorrow. Go on a website, open an app, download our podcast, listen right now. Why can't you do that with postage? Well, you can. You don't need to go to the post office, deal with limited hours, possibly transit or parking. You can just get postage on demand with Stamps.com. Anything you can do at the post office, you can now do right from your desk with Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. And unlike at the post office, Stamps.com never closes, so you can get postage whenever you need it, 24-7. I have signed up for this site, and let me tell you, it is a very straightforward process. It is so much easier than going to the post office, figuring out what their hours are when you realize it's closed when you get there, and then going back, bringing your package, not having the right envelope, not having the right box. You just stay at home, print your postage, ship it out, done. Right now, you can use our code ScienceMag for this special offer. It's a four-week trial, which includes postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com. And then when you get there, before you do anything else, click on the radio microphone at the top of the page and type in ScienceMag. That's stamps.com. Enter code ScienceMag. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. The word you is one of the most commonly used in the English language. And like most words in the top 20, it can be used in a number of ways. One is the second person singular. You are a good friend, talking to someone specifically about themselves. But there's a generic you too. This is used in things like instructions. You take this audio file and edit it. And it doesn't attach to a specific person. It turns out this generic you may be doing more work than was previously thought. Ariana Orville is here to talk about what else generic you does for us. Hi, Ariana. Hi, Sarah. So let's start out with how this word is commonly used. Did I kind of cover the bases there? 
Yeah, uh, that was great. Basically, in our experiments, we find that generic U is used at its most basic level to express generalizations. And specifically, it's used to express norms and rules. And this can apply to rules and norms in common everyday contexts, but also can express norms when people are reflecting on more emotional experiences. Can you give an example of a rule or a norm that uses this kind of structure? In some of our studies, we prompt people to think about rules and norms. So we tell them we're interested in what should and shouldn't be done. And we ask them really simple questions like, what do you do on a rainy day? And we find that when people are told to think about norms for behavior, they are more likely to answer using generic use. So they say things like, you carry an, um, carry an umbrella on a rainy day. Okay. Well, what made you decide to look more deeply into this, into the use of you and, and what it means? We started noticing generic you everywhere. And we thought it was somewhat paradoxical that people seem to use this generic you to refer to their own often really deeply personal experiences. You would hear somebody talking about an assault um, that they had experienced, and they would say something like, when this happens to you, you realize that you never know what's coming in life. And we were wondering what function that was serving. We became really curious uh, as to how generic you was functioning in these contexts and why people were using it to talk about their own personal experiences. To test this idea that it's used in these reflective experiences, how did you elicit that? How did you figure out that this is what people were doing and maybe why they were doing it? Yeah, that's an important question. So in our first set of studies, we were really trying to set up and demonstrate that generic U is tightly linked to these norm-based contexts. And we predicted that generic U may emerge in these more emotional contexts because people are really motivated to try to make meaning of their negative experiences and understand them. One way to make meaning is to situate your experience in a broader context that extends beyond the self or drive an insight that extends beyond the self. And generic use seemed to lend itself really well to that. It inherently expresses generalizations, and we had already demonstrated that it is tightly linked to norms. And so in one study, we were really wanted to show that it was meaning-making specifically around negative experiences that was eliciting the generic you. So that's when you ask people to write about themselves? Yes. Here we randomly assign participants to recall negative experiences, and some participants were then instructed to try to make meaning from those experiences, to talk about what lessons they could learn from them whereas other participants were randomly assigned to relive the negative experience, to think about how they felt when the event unfolded. We predicted that people who were in the meaning-making condition would be more likely to use generic you as they reflected on that negative experience in an effort to drive a broader insight about what happened to them. And that's exactly what we found. People in both conditions wrote about a really wide array of personal events, breakups, uh, fights with family members, friends, work hassles, losing a loved one even. And we found that people who were in the meaning-making condition who were instructed to talk about what lessons they could learn from the event, roughly 45% of them used generic U at least once in their essay. So they constructed these broader norms 
or rules in an effort to normalize their experience and make it more universal. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the numbers here. How many people were in your study and and what kinds of statistics were you able to get uh, out of this data? Each of our studies, or in this particular study, we had roughly 200 participants per cell. So we had 200 participants in the meaning-making condition, 200 in that relive condition. And then we also had a another control condition where participants were randomly assigned to write about and reflect on a neutral experience. We also had participants answer a few self-report questions after they wrote. So one thing that we were really interested in was whether using generic U would provide participants with more psychological distance or space from their negative experience. Given that norms are general and that generic U expresses statements that extend beyond the self, we expected that participants who were in the meaning-making condition and who used generic U would actually report higher levels of psychological distance from the event. And uh, that is what we found, and we replicated that in another study um, as well. What does it all mean here that people are using the word you to describe themselves, that to do this distancing from an experience that they did live through? So this is one of the most fascinating things about this phenomenon to us. And as I said, kind of what got us interested in studying it, it may seem really odd that people are using you to talk about these really deeply personal experiences. But we think that it really speaks to how language is kind of structured to help people make meaning from their negative events. By using generic you, people are able to distance the event from themselves while also not avoiding it, but they're able to express a broader kind of insight or rule and attempt to make their experience more universal. Do you consider this psychology, linguistics, some kind of crossover? Yeah, definitely. So it's definitely psychology, but also we pulled pretty heavily from linguistics. Mostly linguists have have studied generic U, but never really in this context or with experimental studies before. What's the next step when you figure out something like this? This set of studies focused on kind of the intrapersonal functions of you, of generic you. So in that second set of studies where we were looking at how it played out in the context of negative emotional experiences, we were looking at the benefits for the person who was reflecting on that experience. So how it enhanced psychological distance, downstream effects on closure and meaning making, and Now we're really interested in looking at kind of the other side. So if we're having a conversation and you're telling me about something that happened to you and you're using generic you, does that make me empathize with your experience more? Does it draw me closer to you? That's um, one direction where we're interested in taking this next. There can be differences between how we write and how we talk. Do you think there's a difference here in how generic you is used? In some ways, It's almost more striking that we were able to capture this in writing where there isn't really an audience. So people were reflecting in our latter studies about negative experiences. Um, You know, I'm sure they knew that we would look at the data, but there there was no real audience. uh, And we still see it emerge in that medium. But as I said, when we started studying this, I was noticing it everywhere in interviews with people on podcasts, uh, on the news, speeches that people were giving in conversations with colleagues or friends. So I can't say for certain whether the rates are, you know, higher in spoken language versus written, but I, I do think that it is present in both. 
Do you think this is something that's recent because, you know, language changes over time, we start to notice trends. Do you think that this use of you in this, in generic you in this particular way is recent or can you look back through old writings and see going on there? That's a really good question. So our hunch is that this has been around for quite a while. If we look back at literature that was written, you know, not too long ago, but at least a few decades ago, we see generic you emerge there. It would be interesting to try to get some older archival interview data or something and see if we're seeing it express norms there as well. One more recent phenomenon that we have noticed that actually started shortly after we started doing this work was the kind of internet trend of saying, when you leave your umbrella at home and it's pouring rain, those memes. In that sense, I think that we are seeing perhaps an uptick in generic you being used to express norms in those kinds of ways. And what's funny about a lot of those examples is that they're actually quite idiosyncratic. Um, But we see that people are using generic you perhaps in an effort to try to make that experience more normative, to pull their audience on social media in. So definitely interesting to think about. Great. All right, Ariana, thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks, Sarah. This was fun. Ariana Orville and colleagues write about you in this week's issue of Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.